Welcome to Reframe Your Life. I'm Joanne Gibson. And I'm Sandy Reynolds. Together, we bring you our podcast for women who want to live and lead their lives thoughtfully and with intention. On our episodes, we explore diverse topics relevant to all areas of our lives. Hi, Life Reframers. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today because our guest is a very dear and special close friend of mine. It's Maureen Towns. And I'm just going to share a little bit about Maureen before Sandy and I introduce her. She is the founder and CEO of Maureen Towns and Associates. She's based in Calgary, and that's where her and I met a number of years ago. After 25 years of being a nurse, an educator, and a nurse manager in both the public and private healthcare sector, Maureen now runs her own business. Uh, She is a parent of four wonderfully colourful kids, and you can tell she wrote this, can't you? And to four wonderfully colorful kids. You, Joanne, you should perfect. do colorful in quote air quotes. Colorful. Yeah. <laughs> and one perfect granddaughter, of course. So she's a grandma as well, or wow. a glamma, as I like to say. Um, and she studies and teaches parents how to integrate resiliency principles into their own lives and into their parenting. Through her coaching and training programs, Maureen creates an impact with parents by sharing her experience of a healthcare provider as a patient and a parent who has experienced challenges of the system, air quotes, while helping her children work through their own mental health and addiction issues. Maureen considers herself as a bounce back expert who brings hope through perspective and experience to overwhelmed parents of kids of mental health issues. So welcome, Maureen. Thank you, Joanne. That's a wordy intro, isn't it? (laughs) It's all good. I wanted to have it all because we laugh about the colourful kids and what we're talking about today is is serious and just people being more open to speak about mental health issues I think is is very valuable these days. So I just want to say thank you before we start for for being courageous enough to come on and share your story and help us today. So, Thanks hey, Sandy. So much. Hello. I'm looking forward to this, Maureen. I have two colorful children, and, <laughs> and I also have a perfect granddaughter and a perfect grandson. So Nice. Yeah, nice. all from those colorful kids. So. <laughs> what would life be with, like without colorful children? Well, I'm sure that... Um, I'm sure the three of us were colorful children at one time. <laughs> For sure. For sure. So, okay, speaking of kids then, you've got four. I do. And it just happened two boys and then two girls. So yes. <laughs> what is that all about? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, so my husband and I married at 23 and by the by the time I was 24, we'd had our first uh, baby, and we were a little bit baby crazy. We uh, <laughs> we continued to have uh, children over the next six years. We had all four of our oh, kids. Oh wow! And I, yeah, and I kind of <laughs> I I wanted to be a young parent. I wanted to uh, have fun with my kids, and I remember saying to my husband, "I want to have all four by the time I'm 30." And we did. So I just squeaked under the wire having my last baby before. Um, I turned 30. Now, that isn't to say that over the course of raising all of these little kids, there weren't times when I looked in the mirror and thought, what am I doing? Because it was overwhelming, for Mm -hmm. sure, at times. 
And but we kept waiting for you know them to get a little bit older and a little more independent and a little bit more, um, I'll say, personable on a, a little bit more of an adult level. And uh, mm-hmm. we really looked forward to that. So when that time came, though, things uh, weren't the way we thought they'd be. Mm. Yeah. So this is where the the journey of supporting your children through mental health and addictions starts. So um, so you and I met doing our master's, which is a very trying time when you're working full-time as well as studying. And then, of course, you've got this family of, of wonderful children that you're raising as well. We were yeah. raising the kids, and, and they were, um, we thought, sort of, quote-unquote, typical teenagers at that time. Like, our boys were a little bit rebellious and... Um, as challenging as that was, my perspective at the time was that, well, thank goodness, you know, at least they're not boring. And, and I, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I say that now, and I'm almost aghast, you know, that I would think that. But that is what I thought. I thought, well, you know, they're, they, you know, they really are colorful. They've got some personality. They're a little bit rebellious. You know, I'm a little bit rebellious, so I didn't mind that very much. And, uh, but, but the goal was just let's keep them safe. Let's make sure we're not dealing with anything outside the lines too much. Um, let them experiment a little bit and we'll just keep reinforcing consequences and, uh, you know, the rules. And we know that they're going to break them a little bit and eventually they'll grow out of it and become wonderful adults and uh, we'll have some good laughs. That was my perspective. And there were, there were signs looking back that this was not typical behavior but at the time and and we did wonder like so what I'm describing to you is that at the age of 13 14 they would sneak out at night you know and we would we would then get up and notice that they were missing we then we got to the point where we'd set our alarm to check to see if they were in the house and then we'd get up and we'd notice they weren't there we'd go looking for them we'd wait for them they'd be in quote-unquote big trouble you know and they'd be grounded and and away we went. And then we started to notice the experimenting with alcohol and found some drugs in uh, our son's room. And again, we wondered, you know, it's a little early, but is this drinking out of control? Like I remember finding coming home one evening and um, my boys were passed out, both of them mm-hmm. passed mm-hmm. out on the floor. And I, I was worried. I was that, that, that made me worry. I thought, what is going on? Like, this isn't just a little bit of goofing around. And um, we we would call, my husband and I would talk about it. We'd call the employee assistance programs. We'd go for some consults with our doctor. We'd talk to some psychologists. We went to ADAC in Calgary for a consultation just to reassure ourselves that what we were experiencing was okay. And what we were told was that, yes, this was, you know, this was teenage experimentation, mm-hmm. Maybe a little on the heavy side, but nothing, nothing addictive or anything like that at this point, and that we just needed to keep uh, firm with our boundaries and our rules and, you know, sort of stay on top of it. And, and at this point, Joanne, I think, you know, things weren't showing on the outside. I would say that mm. I probably appeared fairly sane at this point. <laughs> <laughs> fairly functional, uh, you know, just kind of going along, doing my thing, uh, you know, parenting my kids and going to work and doing my studies. Mm-hmm. And um, I Well, you're right. Just, just to jump in, it's not something you 
would automatically talk about, right? I mean, we had a we had a work relationship that turned into a friend relationship, and um, you know, we spoke about stuff. But yeah, from the outside looking in, everything was great and fine, and but you going through all this stuff which 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 is life which is yeah what many people we know we don't know what whatever everyone else is going through yeah we don't and I mean if you were to ask me about my kids I'd probably do the you know dramatic eye roll and say oh teenagers you know teenagers raise you know and we're having some challenges but you know it's all good because that's what we thought was going on Things started to, I would say, sort of spiral fairly out of control when my second son was 18. So at that time, I think it was probably around 2011 or 2012, right around the time you and I were in school, mm-hmm. Joe, mm-hmm. and or just after I'd finished my master's, actually. Mm-hmm. I was graduating. And um, my son was, one was off at university doing engineering, and we thought he was thriving from <laughs> From our perspective here in Calgary, you know, we'd Skype with him once a week. He was living in a frat house. He was partying it up, getting good grades. And we were really, really proud of him. We thought he was just, like I say, I said, I remember saying to my husband, he is born to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, we felt so good about it. And my second son was um, really struggling to get through his last year of high school, Um I was very worried about him, uh, not not mentally or physically, but I was worried about him uh, in, in terms of his motivation and, and his grades and worried that he would not go on to post-secondary school. He seemed only interested in partying, and I was worried, honestly, that that meant he was going to live in my basement forever, and that scared me. <laughs> that was my biggest fear, that this kid is not going to launch. He's not going to become independent. He didn't seem interested in it, and I, and I was. I wanted these kids to, you know, get on with their lives. And so I did all kinds of things like... Um, nagging him and phoning his guidance counselor and rearranging his schedule in high school so he had study time and honestly when I look back and I uh, uh, and then you know coercing him into um, applying for programs and helping him write letters and oh my gosh and then you know I even registered him for an EMT program here in Calgary and paid for it uh, just to try and get him to do something Mm-hmm. And it, it became apparent that he wasn't doing it. He would say that he was leaving to go to his program, and we would suspect that he wasn't. Uh, of course, then the policing kicks in, and you start following him, and honestly. And we found out that, of course, he's not going to school. And what is he doing? Well, he's smoking pot with a friend and um, mm. losing weight. And uh, finally admits that he has a problem with pot, um, and I, you know, vow to help him with that and I'm going to help him find a job and I'm going to help him detox and going to help this kid get straightened out. And it went downhill very, very quickly from there, uh, to the point where, you know, we'd, we'd sort of run out of options with him and we thought that, and, and then coming up to sort of one of the moments where I realized, you know, we have a problem here. This is a, this isn't something that we can handle and we need help, um, what had happened was that we had decided that, you know, what he needed was the school of hard knocks. We thought, we'll tell him that he needs to move out on his own 
he'll leave our home, realize within two or three days that um, he had it really good here and that he had a lot of support and that it would be worth it to, you know, go to work or go to school in order to live in this comfy house with his supportive parents who were paying for a cell phone, etc. And um, he didn't seem that upset when we asked him to go. In fact, he seemed quite... Um, like there was maybe a weight off his shoulders, which was bizarre for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we remember watch, watching him skip down this front walk, you know, to get in his van. And my husband and I are looking. We're crying, of course. We're giving him money. We're packing up food and putting it in bags. And he's happy. And we're thinking, what is this? We just, mm-hmm. we couldn't really figure out what was going on. And Rather than uh, what we hoped would happen would be that he'd come back right away and realize that he'd made a grave mistake, um, he slipped further and further into homelessness and uh, seemed less and less interested in communicating with us or coming home. And that scared me to death. Mm. Um, I remember we followed him one evening. We would drive around looking for him. Um, you know, I'd be working and I'd, I'd leave work and go looking for him. We'd follow him. Like we were just obsessed with him Mm -hmm. and trying to figure him out and what was going on and, and is he going to be okay? Like I was terrified he was going to die. I thought he's going to die. He's going to drink too much. He's going to take drugs. He's going to pass out in his van. He's going to you know, aspirate on vomit, he's going to have hypothermia, someone's going to beat him up, he's going to be hit by another vehicle while he's parked on the side of the road, he's going to die, I've got to get this kid back, and um, we we parked and we watched him one evening um, walk into a Walmart, and I said to my husband, go get him, like, go get him (laughs) out of the Walmart and tell him to have a coffee with us, and we'll just sort of kidnap him Mm -hmm. home. You know, he's 18. He's a big kid. And so my husband went after him into the Walmart store while I sat in the truck with my pajamas on, (laughs) you know, 11 p.m. And uh, my husband came back without him, and I was furious. And my husband hopped in the truck and said, he won't come with me. And I remember just saying, what do you mean he won't come with you? Like, what do you mean? Like, is this it? Mm. And uh, it was at that point that we decided to get uh, a little bit serious about making some calls and finding out um, what we could do to help him. At the end of the day, uh, we did all kinds of things that I wouldn't recommend other people do. <laughs> 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 and uh, we ended up uh, conducting an intervention. And not that interventions are bad, just the way we went about it. We did an intervention uh, for him and uh, sent him off to a uh, uh, sketchy treatment center in small town Quebec and um, Mm. thought that that was going to quote unquote fix him. And we sat at home traumatized for the next four months, uh, scared to death of him coming home. What was happening with your other children? Like your, your two daughters, they were younger and how were they processing all of this? Uh, not well, because we, we tried to protect them from it. We tried to hide it from them. Uh, we, we were honest to a point, but we didn't, we didn't really share much, and we certainly didn't share uh, how we felt. Um, and so they were on the outside looking in, mm-hmm. and uh, they were a little resentful. Now I know this, that they were, they were a little angry with us at the time um, for not 
including them. And, um, and I think they felt, looking back, that we were very unavailable to them. Mm. And we were. I mean, they're yeah. not wrong. We were, we were obsessed with, with Ben and what was going on with him. And it was about that time, while Ben was in drug treatment, that uh, my youngest daughter started uh, to self-harm. So she started to cut herself. And um, this was new to us. We thought, what is this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and we, I would get texts from her friend's parents saying, uh, we're worried about Allie. Um, she's hurting herself and threatening to kill herself. And I would be like, what is going on in my house? And I would, you know, go and go upstairs and get her out of bed. And I'd say, Allie, what's happening? I'm hearing... You know, I'm getting these messages and I'm horrified. Like, what is going on with you? And she would, uh, you know, she would say, I'm sorry, it's okay. No, I'm just really sad. I don't know. And, and so we, we began a process of, of trying to get her some help as well. And I was um, worried about her and a little angry with her. It felt like a lot of attention-seeking behavior from my perspective at that time. And um, I thought... Mm. You know, we just don't have energy to give this. Mm. Why would you? Why would you do this to us at this time? You know, that's the way it felt. And um, so we started down the family doctor path. And then, you know, the only way to get a psychiatric help was to present in an emergency department and mm. or get on a wait list. And we began the bit of a long road to try and uh, uncover what was going on for her. It took probably two, two and a half years to sort of get a solid diagnosis and treatment for her. So that was in and out of appointments and histories and all kinds of things, trying to figure that out. Wow. So, and I didn't know that part of the story. So in the meantime, you're just thinking uh, your second son, who's now in Quebec getting treatment, like was mental health coming into your thought processes or are you just thinking, well, he's just he can't be bothered kind of living life and he just wants to live this way or like what was well no you know I wasn't thinking of mental health as an Mm. underlying issue at that time I was thinking it had to be the parenting quite frankly I thought I I did I thought you know maybe honestly I was like conduct these post-mortems of his childhood wondering what we missed where did we go wrong what did he need that we didn't provide you know what happened to to cause this and very personalized um, approach to, you know, something that's going on for Ben it must be about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you do as a mother, right? I, I think oh, I went yeah. through some challenges with my daughter in her late teens and I, I thought the same thing. Like, what did I do? Like, how did I mess her up? You know, like, yes. what did I do? Yeah. Yeah. And the best conclusion that I came to that I was really stuck on was that in a, I think in grade four, Ben struggled with reading comprehension, and I didn't have time to tutor him, and that then must have led to uh, poor self-esteem, which then made him susceptible to drug use. That was honestly logical to me at that time. Yeah, yeah. And so I would beat myself up about it. I failed this kid. I failed this kid. I failed this kid. I don't know what to do. I failed him. I failed him. I can't mm-hmm. fail him again. I can't fail him again. Like, that's how it felt. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was terrifying. And um, 
so he came home from drug treatment. Um, we did, you know, we'd hired, we'd hired the interventionist. We paid for this drug treatment program. We'd flown back and forth to Quebec to visit him to make it pleasant. We'd uh, the drug treatment program closed down suddenly by the province um, because it was a little dodgy. And of course, we flew straight out there to pick him up and got him home and hired. A, a company from California to help us with the transition home and we flew this guy up here to help us you know negotiate sobriety with him and you know oh my gosh the things we did and um, within about six weeks he was relapsed and uh, back out so the negotiating sobriety is that because as you said earlier in your story I mean he's well, he's 18, right? So probably mm-hmm. possibly 19. Like he's an adult, mm-hmm. young adult, but he's an yeah. adult. He's about 18 and a half um, at this point, yeah. Yeah. So he wanted to move back home at that point, but then there's rules, right? So this is where right. I found it. This is when you and I would start to talk about it and, and where you had to be so strong mm-hmm. and, and fight that battle that I'm sure parents – fight many days of I want everything to be fine I want to just make it all better for you like you already said you paid for him to do all these courses and stuff well that didn't work but now if he's coming back into your family home there's got to be rules around or even more I mean there was rules before but now he's developed and grown a little bit in this time that he was in Quebec as well so how has he changed and yeah well he wasn't really healthy um right he was healthier I mean he'd gained some weight he looked a little more grounded I mean you could look into his eyes they were clear um but in this program that he was at which I don't think exists anymore he was using um there was drugs in the treatment center and um it wasn't wasn't great right and uh, so he came home though thinking that uh really just he needed to avoid pot but that he could now behave like a quote you know i use a lot of quote unquote but he wanted to be a normal 18 year old and go out to the bars and drink with his friends and you know we were terrified of that we thought you know a drug is a drug this is not a good idea and so we made a rule that you have to be sober to live in our home. You can't be drinking. You have to go to meetings. You have to be sober. He didn't see the value of meetings. The program that we'd sent to him to was a non-12-step program. So he really didn't think that was for him. So it wasn't long before, you know, he'd gone out and, and drank and came home. And we had we had made a contract with him that he wouldn't do that. And so, of course, the consequence to breaking that rule was that he'd have to find another place to live. And he did. And off he went. Um and then began the cycle of him in and out of our home over the next, I would say, year, um, probably five or six times moving back and moving out and moving back and moving out. And each time we got a little bit smarter about uh, him needing to put in more effort to his sobriety than we were putting in. But it was very scary and it was difficult and it was sad. I mean, each time we had to ask him to leave was horrifying yeah. mm-hmm. uh, how did you, you do that as a parent like how do you oh it was awful it was awful and I and I knew each time we let him back in we were setting ourselves up again but there's the hope right you just hope upon hope upon hope right. that this time you're going to get it right and he's going to he wants this I want to help him you know he wants to be sober he knows this time you know he's 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 crying he he's asking for our help how could we say no like 
of course you can come back. Of course, of course, of course. Let me do all your laundry. Let me make you something to eat, you know. <laughs> just awful every time. And, um, and then, of course, the chaos would start. And he'd, you know, start slipping back into old behaviors and, you know, become unreliable, not following through, you know, not going to work uh, or not going to school or whatever it was that he was doing at the time, staying in bed all day, partying all night, mm -hmm. you know, away we'd go again and it would become, um, like I say, chaos in our home again and we'd say, look, we can't live like this. You have to be sober to live here. Okay, I'm gone. Out you'd go again. <laughs> You know, so this was the process, and I think it was during this period of time that our oldest son was home from university for the summer, and um, him and my him and Ben um, were very close, right? So they're good party buddies, and so they'd go out partying all summer, and it was awful, mm. like just awful. My husband and I just hated it. We couldn't wait, honestly, for my oldest son to go back to university because it was a relief, you know, when he wasn't living there, and. Um, you know, in hindsight, that's that's a sign there's a problem. One day, Sam had a psychotic break. So Sam's our oldest son, and he, and a psychotic break is an acute, uh, acute brain injury, really. It's an event oh. that happens in which you become very dissociated with reality. And so the way that presented was that Sam um, started to, phone my husband randomly and say things that didn't make sense. He would leave messages saying, how could you do this to me? Um, I thought I could trust you. You know, things that, like, right out of context. Like, my husband was trying to get a hold of me at work and saying, you know, have you heard from Sam? There's Something's going on with him. And so then I'd try and phone him, and he'd answer and hang up. We'd, I'd phone his workplace while he stormed off in a, uh, with, after a conflict with a, with his supervisor, which was not like him at all. Mm. Um, and so we were re really worried. We started to think something's wrong with him, and he's disappeared. And then we got a phone call from his cell phone. Someone had found it on the C-train tracks along with his backpack. Oh. Yeah, and we were terrified. We thought, what is going on? And so I was calling the police and, you know, reporting him missing and, you know, then experiencing answering questions they're doing a suicide assessment risk with me over the phone and I'm I'm honestly experiencing my own dissociative symptoms at this point I'm start mm -hmm. I'm, I'm almost watching myself in disbelief that this is going on well he turned up he 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 walked into a police station with his hands in the air saying I know you're looking for me um, I'm a terrorist wow. Yeah, and so the police called me, and, and off I went to try and get him, and it wasn't long. Like, I walked into this tiny interview room, and um, he was not okay. Like, it was just very clear that he was very, very unwell. He just looked, he was incredibly paranoid. Um, pupils were dilated. He was stiff as a board. I tried to give him a hug, and he was stiff. He was suspicious. He wasn't making sense. Uh, he's an incredibly logical thinker, and he wasn't making any sense at all. And uh, I remember I went out. I stepped out of the interview room and spoke with the constable that was was with me. And, I, and she said, "Are you like they couldn't believe this was the first time anything like this had ever happened?" Mm. And I'm saying, "This this really is a first, and he's not okay, and I'm not okay to take him home. We need help. Like this, I'm scared." 
really scared. And so they uh, popped him in the back of a cruiser and drove him up to the hospital. And I went up behind them and called my husband who came to meet me. And we were just in shock. I mean, I remember sitting in that waiting area of the emergency department while they were, you know, admitting him through the back door and just, you know, I think honestly, complete shock is the way that I would describe the way my husband and I were doing that night. We were my legs felt like lead, you know, we would shuffle down a hallway, couldn't make a decision, easiest decisions, like, do you want something to eat? I'd say, I don't know, like, I'm just mm. completely overwhelmed. So Sam was hospitalized for a couple of weeks at that point and sent home saying, okay, so we we know you're experiencing psychosis, we don't know, you know, you're hallucinating, you're, you're hearing things, you're seeing things that aren't real, we don't know whether this is early uh, schizophrenia or whether this is a drug-induced psychosis, the only way to really find out is to stay off drugs for a year and take these antipsychotics, see if it works. You know, That's and so off serious. we went. Yeah. You know, and, and um, you know, I've got this over-sedated um, man sitting on my sofa now for weeks, completely unmotivated to do anything, um, who seemed incapable of, or unwilling, I guess, maybe at first, to stay off drugs and alcohol. Mm. And we started to scratch our heads and say, Sam, like, you know what's at risk here. This is your brain health. This is, we, you're running a risk of not being able to return to baseline if you have another psychotic break. This is, this is permanent brain damage is what we're talking about. And yet, he would drink anyway. Mm. And that's when we started to scratch our heads and say, he might have a problem with drugs and alcohol, too. Like, this could mm. be, he could be an addict as well. Mm. Wow, that's, uh, I can't even imagine how the impact that must have been having on every area of your life, your marriage, your other kids, your work, it must have been just everything. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was every. it was everything. I mean, you know, we were still trying to get a diagnosis for Allie at this point, you know, so we're in and out of appointments for her, Ben's in and out of our home, and um, Sam is living with us, but not thriving by any means. And um, yeah, it was tough on our marriage for sure. Um, we were, you know, it was hard for us. I think, I think we, we partnered well reasonably well but we were it felt like we were never on the same page at the same time overall principally we were this we we agreed on things but on days when I was overwhelmed and just wanted to stay in bed my husband would be you know um, let's do something and on days when I was like you know we've got to make a decision here what are we going to do you know he's in bed right. and we're you know so we're just not doing okay struggling yeah, there just seemed to be no end in sight. And and lots of, um, you know, like I said earlier, lots of moments where we would sit and, and look at ourselves and say, what are, how could we, we mess this up this badly? You know, we're both loving parents. We, we love our kids. Uh, there's no, quote, unquote, trauma in our home. You know, there was no abuse. Yeah. Um, we you had boundaries. You had we had boundaries. We're both professionals. We're yeah. smart. You know, we yeah. we have good friends. We, you know, we have extracurricular activities. We like we did all the things that we 
knew how to do. You know, I would have loved to grow up in that home. Right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we'd look at that and say, how did this happen? Like, what is going on? Did you feel that other people were, would judge you or kind of blame you too? Or like what, were people giving you advice, like your circle Well, did friends? anyone know it? Not, not the professionals, I guess. Did any of your friends and family know as well? Like, yeah. No, we were, we were holding it pretty mm. quiet. Like we didn't uh, – my brothers knew one knew, knew more than the other. Um, we didn't talk to Steve's family about what was going on at the time. Um, mm. We just, I mean, we couldn't field the questions and we weren't up for honest, and I, and I mean, stupid questions like, have you tried firm boundaries? Yeah. You know, like we could, just couldn't yeah. handle it. Um, have you and, tried uh, taking them off food coloring? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, have you tried, like, gluten could be the problem, you know, like, yeah. there's no end to, um, you know, well, you know, well, that's why I have my kids in sports, you know, those yeah. are the kinds. So yeah. That's why we well well there. meaning, but could come yeah, yeah. could come across as judgmental because of the place you're in, right? Well, so. well, I was hyper alert to it yes. because I was judging myself. Yes, you know, so I my greatest fear is that this is my fault and that I'm going to lose my kids. And so mm. you didn't have to do much for me to think that maybe you thought the same thing. Mm. Mm. You know whether you were or not. Um, and, and well-meaning, you're, like, you're, like you said, Joanne, and people would say to us, um, you know, boy, if this can, you know, and this was, this is what something, someone said this to us, if this can happen to you, it can happen to anyone, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes, that's true. And um, tell us what we should do to oh. avoid, oh, you right. know, which, which is just, right, <laughs> very right. clear messaging that there's something that you did or didn't did. do. Yeah. Well, and when you're kidding. What Exactly, exactly. Make them follow through with piano lessons. I don't know. (laughs) All things that we screwed up. I don't know. Looking back now, and you've spoken about some of them, but what what are some of the biggest mistakes you think you made? I mean, I don't know if mistakes is a harsh word, but, I mean, you said, for example, you sent sent Ben off to Quebec and all this money. I mean, what would, I guess, what would you do differently, I suppose? Yeah, well, you know, I guess we made lots of mistakes and we did all kinds of things with the best of intentions. Mm-hmm, of um, at the time, we were doing things that weren't helpful in solving the problems that we were having. Um, in hindsight, I would say I'm really grateful for all the things that we did wrong because now when I'm working with other people, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's not a lot of things that people can bring to me that we didn't do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And having had three children who presented very differently, um, there's not a lot of things we haven't seen, you know, in terms of behaviors and issues um, with the kids. So, you know, looking back, really grateful for the path that we took. But my goal now is to save people um, some of the time and energy and money that we spent uh, going down the wrong path. So... Uh, the way that I do that is I think there's I think there's huge merit to talking to someone who's been there who can tell you what's effective and what's not um, can help coach you a little bit uh, in thinking about what's what's your goal like what are your fears and where do you want to get to um, and how do we resource your child or parent or whoever it is that you're trying to support 
um, with a reputable um, form of recovery for whatever they're experiencing. Um, and, and that's what we didn't do. Well, we did it eventually, but we, you know, we did things like uh, Googling support, calling 1-800 numbers. Um, so we were dealing with strangers, essentially, mm -hmm. the whole time without word of mouth references, which I think is important. I think you need to talk to someone who's been there, done that, develop a rapport with them and and get some guidance on and education on what's out there. Um, because, you know, I think what we were, we were targets, really. I mean, we were so scared. Um, we thought we were being discerning and asking lots of questions, but really fear-based decisions is what we were making, which are usually not great decisions. And... Um, yeah, we were easy, easy sitting ducks, really, you know. To spend all this money on things. Yeah. You said we needed to speak to someone who had were, were referrals and very hard to do when you're in this place of, well, it's my fault I'm a negative parent. I can't I can't be vulnerable and tell anyone else that, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I've, exactly. I've so how do exactly. you get those referrals, like you say? Well, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, well, it's all word of mouth. And so... Yeah. Well, my clients right now are word of mouth clients because, yes. you know, everybody knows somebody who's struggling with this and um, yeah. that's sad to say, but it's true. And what happened for me was that I was at work in my office, overwhelmed, crying, I think probably, which, you know, I don't cry. I'm strong, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, but close to one of my um, secretaries. And so my secretary came into the office and I said, I'm really having a hard time. And I confided in her and she said, Oh, you should talk to so-and-so because she, she knew she's been through a lot with her son. Oh. And I thought, oh, I didn't know that. And so, you know, of course, I went to this person and I said, I um, understand that you might, you know, might be able to relate to some of the things that I'm experiencing with my child. I'm terrified and, and talk to her. And um, it was it was such a relief and she was gentle and she was kind and she understood and there was no judgment from her. And I was just such a relief. And she, and she encouraged me. She was very honest about the pros and cons of some of the treatments that, uh, that they'd been through and encouraged me to check them out for myself and, you know, not pushy in any way, just said, you know, this is, this is something I would encourage you to look into. And this is what our experience was. And turns out that was the best thing that we did. We ended up going to a treatment center here in, in Calgary, Albert Adolescent Recovery Center. And uh, um, I thought that our kids were too old for the programs. And, and so I never did really look into it. And I was getting this program mixed up with ADAC. And I just, you know, I work in the system and I didn't really understand it. And um, so we gave them a call. We went in for a pre-assessment. We felt hopeful mm. for the first time. And we were looking at this program for Ben only initially, but wondering if Sam needed it too. And so we, it's a family pr treatment program. So everyone in the family needs to be treated, which I strongly support. And um, went in and uh, went home and, and talked to the other kids about it and said, okay, this is what we're thinking of offering. Ben, and if, if he takes us up on it, we all have to participate. So are you willing to do that? And they all agreed um, that they would. And so we offered it to Ben. And, um, you know, of course, with the, you can do this or off you go for the last time. Like, we can't keep doing this. So he agreed to go and went. 
And within a month, uh, Sam was admitted to the same program. And so we were in that program for almost a year um, with our two boys. It changed our lives, absolutely changed our lives. And I learned an awful lot about um, myself, <laughs> mm-hmm. an awful lot about um between that and Allie's uh, treatment for borderline personality, which ended up being her diagnosis. So Allie's borderline, um, Sam's borderline, um, Sam and Ben are in recovery from addictions. That's where we are today. Everybody's doing well. Everybody's sober. Everybody's thriving. Everybody's happy. Everybody's pursuing a future. I have a great relationship with all of them. And I'm so grateful. I love who they are. Um, love talking with them. Um, They're insightful, they're articulate, like I'm just so grateful for all of it now. Um, But it was a tough, tough few years. And they, um, I learned about what I do now, like I learned about um, boundaries, I learned about limits, I learned about self care, I learned about emotional intelligence, I learned about validation, I learned a lot about advocacy, I learned a lot about resiliency, I learned a lot about, you know, what's out there in the system, how to, uh, what kind of questions can you ask, what kind of things should you be listening for, Um, what's the difference between you know, this psychologist and this psychologist and which one's right for us. Um, I've learned a lot about working with parents and and listening to their stories of shame and hopelessness and um, fear and denial and helping them to chip away at that and and realize that they, they, there's, there's hope on the other side of this. You know, if, if you, if you're willing to do some work, there's there's a good relationship with yourself. There's a good relationship with your the person that you're supporting, and there's uh, yeah great happiness and hope on the other side. So that's I try and walk them through that terrifying, scary, difficult time that we experienced. Mm-hmm. Wow, mm. it's such a. Um, it's- great I'm sure to be on the other side but you mentioned self-care and we have just recently done an episode on self-care and I was thinking about that because you know I've been through my own challenges not not like yours with my husband's health and things like that and I remember how focused I was on getting everybody through the crisis and then later kind of had my own bit of a like just depression is my own bit of a what I had was depression and pretty severe depression and I think it was four years of caring for everybody else and putting out fires and managing everything on my own and Mm -hmm. uh, I just what kinds of things did you learn about your own self-care during this process? Well, it was non-existent during the process, um, and I became very, very brittle. You say, Sandy, I, like, I, I hear what you're saying. You, you become depressed. You become exhausted. Um, and depression for me looked like apathy. Um, didn't look like sadness so much as hopeless apathy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how it felt. And, 
so if you'd said to me at that time, what do you do for fun? I would have looked at you like you had three heads. Um, first of all, what's fun? And <laughs> nothing's fun. And I don't remember having fun. Like I couldn't even think back. What, what did I used to do? I'm sure I had fun at one point in my life, but I don't even remember what it was. Um, and, and as a result of that, I was like, when I say I was brittle, I was incapable of empathizing with anyone else or supporting anyone else or connecting in a meaningful way with anyone. And so the reason why, you know, self-care is so key is that, um, you're useless to yourself or anyone else if you aren't looking after yourself. And so I started to, and I thought self-care was pe pedicures, manicures, hairstyle. People say, well, you need to look after yourself. And I'm like, I do. I get my nails done. You know, what's wrong? Um, <laughs> but, but my life was without joy. And I, yeah. and so when I look at self-care and we, you know, I do a bit of an assessment for people um, with all the areas of their life, you know, we do a bit of an evaluation and, you know, if you're not doing anything that brings you joy and, and a sense of presence, you're not looking after yourself. And um, that's what I learned about self-care. Self-care is about joy. It's not about nails. Um, so that's it's a, a great thing. Twitter comment. Self-care. Yes. I might go on our Instagram. Self-care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I try, try and identify, you know, little things even that would bring me joy, like um, l listening to my kids laugh. Mm. I, I love that. I, you know, so I try and find more opportunities to do that. I, I love watching my dog, uh, on a walk. That's mm. self-care for me. Um, I love going out to the mountains and going for a walk. I feel very grounded or even around the city. I mean, I walk along the river and it's, I feel like me again, you know, so anything that brings me joy is self-care now, mm -hmm. which is very, very different than. So I want to talk a little bit about, you, you said boundaries and limitations. Is that what you find parents struggle with the most? Yes. Yeah. Um, my mum was totally the opposite. <laughs> <She's> yeah. Like... <laughs> She always put it down to, well, I grew up on a farm and, you know, you either sink or swim, you know, so. Yeah. And, you know, that, yeah, for sure. And you know what? I would have said I was the same way, Joanne. Like, I would have said, oh, I don't have a problem with boundaries. You know, I'm yeah. firm. I'm fine. But <clears throat> all of that gets really shaky when yeah. you think that if you enforce a boundary and something that's okay or not okay with you, that. Your child, you're gonna lose your child. Child could be in danger. Yeah, it must have been. You start to lower the bar, and you start uh, to eyes, and you start yeah. to, right. All those boundaries get really shaky. And for me, what did it for me? What taught me that I better figure this out, right? Really fast. I was at a twelve-step program eating with some yeah. other parents of uh, kids who were struggling, mm -hmm. and I was listening to one of the other mothers talk about her son, and I, I thought wow, I have so much in common with her. She was describing 
her concern that her son was living in her home and she wanted him out and she was thinking about, you know, paying for an apartment for him. And, you know, he was struggling with work and she would get him up every morning and, you know, help him get out the door. And, you know, she was, you know, cashing in investments to try and support him. And, and, uh, I remember thinking, Oh my gosh, I've got, I've got the perfect idea. Her son and my son should, get a place together and then they'd be out of our homes and uh, we, you know, we could, we could sort of move forward. And so I went to her after the meeting and I, you know, even as I'm saying that, I, I kind of knew it was crazy, but there's kind of this hope, you know, too. Yeah. Maybe there's a solution here. And, and I went to talk to her and I said, so how old is your son? And she said, 45. I was 45. And that was a slap upside the head for me that if I don't learn how to do things differently, I'm going to be, I'm going to be in her position in my 60s. So this is going to go on forever. Nothing's going to change unless I change. That's when I started to get really serious about I need to understand boundaries and limits because I am not willing to do this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son's 18, you know, and he's, and, and, and there's 45-year-olds out there, you know, having the same mother-son relationship that I'm having right now. I can't do this forever. Wow. So I had a friend who had a uh, challenging situation with her son, and I remember she went for therapy, and she said she had to come to the place where she kind of accepted that he, would, he could die if he yes. kept going down that path and she couldn't keep rescuing him and she had, she said it was very, very difficult. It is very difficult because you find yourself going to um, insane. And I, I literally mean insane lengths to try and uh, live your child's life for them to prevent the pain and fear of their death because that's that is the fear, right? Mm-hmm. What if they die? What if they die? What if they die? What if they die? And eventually, you have to say, you know what? If they're meant to die, they're meant to die. Mm-hmm. Like I can't save. I cannot. I'm not that powerful. I can't. I didn't. You know, we talk about I'm not that powerful. I didn't cause it. I can't cure it. Mm-hmm. This is their past. They get to live it. And I've got a life to live too. And you know, I love my. I love my kids. You know, and I'll always support them. But I've learned that one of my own boundaries and one of my own limits is that I'll never put more work into their recovery than they are. Mm. When I start to feel like I'll do, I'll save them, that's when I know that I'm not doing very well. Mm. Right? So the biggest learning here is that I am not their solution. Mm. I am their mother. And that is a limiting, that is a limiting role. And recognizing yeah. that and remembering that uh, is important. And you know what? They do way better when I stay out of it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just want to turn to mental health, Maureen, because yeah. I'm affected by mental health too. Like your son who started engineering, I like to um, organize everything and, and, and have a, a reason and a solution and, uh, well, that must have led to that and that must have led to that. And, and um, we, we've had a family member, Ashley and I have had a family member who has been, di- well, I think diagnosed with 
with bipolar and, and we've we've watched it from afar and we've been a bit skeptical and now he's had another um and this has been over a number of years and now he's had another i don't know episode so now he's yep. back in the mental health ward with with depression and of course so i'm like well what triggered it you know what happened <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Really trying to be different this time around. Yeah. And Ashley and I are trying to be supportive for our family member. And, um, but I do find myself asking questions. So do you think it was that, or, or yeah. what's going? On? Or, or, or are they trying to manipulate the situation? Are they, are they just wanting uh, attention? You know. Like, <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. It's so. It, oh, I so, I so, I so relate to that. I mean, that's what I thought with my daughter. I mean, who cuts themselves for attention? I mean, really. This is this is not. I mean, I like attention too, but this is an un, this is an unwell person. And it comes off as manipulative. It can. It can, from the outside in, feel very like they're trying to get us to pay attention to them. Um, and yeah. maybe they are. Maybe they are. But that's not because they're doing so. That's not because they're doing well. Um, mm. And so we do like a straight line, don't we? Right? Mm -hmm. We like to know that you know, they're, you're here because you because of this. Mm. And and what I've what I've discovered is that um, there is no straight line. There's no cause and effect um, as neatly as we'd like it to be. There, it's incredibly complex. Um, it's such a mix. It's very, you know, I look, I subscribe to the biopsychosocial model of uh, mental health. And so for me, that means that, you know, everybody's born with a certain um, brain, right? Certain mm -hmm. brain chemistry and, and a certain uh, biochemistry um, that puts them at risk for X, Y, Z, let's say. And then they go through their lives um, experiencing life uh, in, in, in ways that we, we cannot dissect neatly that either, you know, um, there's ways to look at this. I, I, let's think of a spectrum. Let's think of a scale. Let's say that you're born uh, with a risk for depression that might be, let's say, a, a 7 out of 10. And then you're born also with risk for ADHD, a 2 out of 10. You're born with a risk of bipolar, maybe let's say it's 9 out of 10. You know, and then you go through life and, you know, day to day, and there's things that will move that dot up and down the scale towards the 10 or towards a 1. Um, and, and it's a constantly moving sort of dial. And so how anything plays out for any one person is very, it's, it's so, like I say, it's complex and it, anyone's guess how, it, how it's going to manifest. So you, you know, we're all born a little bit different and then our experience, our experiences are experienced different. So there's a, and a, there's a saying that I really like, some of us are born dandelions, as, uh, dandelions and some of us are born orchids. And what that means is that some of us are born so resilient, like with this already on board, that I could, you know, and, I, and I'm a dandelion, so I could root in the crack of a sidewalk and bloom. Whereas my kids were born orchids. They needed the right amount of light, the right amount of water, the right kind of soil, all fairly um, precious systems in order to thrive. 
you know, and then you combine that with, you know, all these formative experiences that we might not even know about. For example, one, one day my son came home and after one of his treatments <laughs> centers and said, um, I was talking with my counselor today and I told her about this time when I was playing recess in grade two and I slid into home plate and Jimmy banged my head against the plate. And it was a big, and it was a big deal. And I thought, holy smokes, I don't, I didn't know that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I might not, maybe he did tell me and I would have thought, oh, I'm sure Jimmy didn't mean anything by it. Mm-hmm. Like it was not a big deal mm-hmm. in my life. But for, for my son, this was a moment frozen in time that spoke to him about who he is and how he fits into the world. A moment that was, you know, overwhelming shame, embarrassment, feeling less than, that would have moved his dial up or down on the scale. Mm. That, you know, and so how all of that plays out, like I say, what, you know, why can some of us grow up in homes that are really tough, you know, with maybe abuse and alcoholism and be functional adults, and some of us can grow in, up in homes that are loving, supportive, and struggle. Mm-hmm. Why do two kids in the same family, you know, come out differently? One struggles with mental health and the other is thriving. Kind of thinking around dandelion, orchid, mm-hmm. you know, the propensity to develop mental health issues, formative experiences, like the resiliency, all, it's all so complex that, yeah, I mean, is everybody doing the best they can? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Can I understand it? No. So learning about resiliency skills and, and because resiliency, or like I think of resiliency like an elastic band, you know, you stretch it um, and it returns back to its normal shape and resiliency can be built. Um, it can be developed um, and that elastic band can get stronger and stronger and stronger. And so studying resiliency for me is fascinating. And how do we become more resilient as parents? How do we build it in our kids? How do we support our friends? All of that is really, really important, I think. We seem to hear more about mental health challenges in young adults right now, like across the board is that just because there's more kids being diagnosed whereas in the past people just pushed on with whatever issues they had or is is there is there more mental health issues are there more mental health issues good question uh, I don't know the answer, but I certainly have thoughts on it. I think that I think it's a, probably a combination of the two things. I would say um, a little bit of it is that you know our DSM, our Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, has gotten you know gone from probably thirty disorders to over five hundred. So there's more diagnosable things, um, and it's always changing. And and that you know the stigma around mental health. Um, is changing. And so, you know, for example, if I look back at my family history, was there mental health and addictions issues? Yeah. Did we call them that? No. You know, um, did we just keep enabling people? Yep. You know, Mm -hmm. and sort of making excuses for them. That's what we did. Um, And now we don't. Now we say, you know, you should get some help and, and people are more open to that. In addition to that, though, I do think that we have we are raising generations and generations of 
kids um, without a lot of resiliency or ability to connect with each other on a meaningful level. I think that the internet and cell phones are a huge issue. Um, And I think they're very addictive. And I think that um, they are changing probably. I think we're going to see studies over the next five to ten years that the way kids' brains are developing is different. Mm -hmm. I think that we are hijacking the development of the brain. I mean, I look at my granddaughter with my cell phone. She's obsessive with it. It's a little bit scary how drawn she is to my cell phone. And I do wonder what it's doing to her head. Um, And I think that, you know, much like, you know, I look at my own kids. So when I look at legalizing marijuana, for example, it's a little bit scary. It doesn't scare me if you're 35 years old and you want to smoke marijuana, live it up, Mm -hmm. go for it. You know, not my cup of tea, but go, go ahead. That does not scare me. Um, Teenagers scare me. Their brains are still developing and it will change the way their brains develop. Mm -hmm. And so normalizing pot use Um, I think is dangerous for our young population. I don't think it's dangerous for, you know, 30 and up, but, but under that really does bother me a fair bit. Mm -hmm. I think we're, and I think it, I think it gets in the way of resiliency. I think it gets in the way of of developing um, a centered relationship with yourself. And I think you need a centered relationship with yourself to be able to connect with who you are before you can connect meaningfully with other people. And I think that is leading to all kinds of mental health issues. Wow. Well, we did an episode on your community, building your community, people around Mm -hmm. you who support you. And and in that we spoke about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this sense Mm -hmm. of belonging, right? And, and, um, And I think I said, you know, some people find that through these groups and stuff online, um, but there still needs to be that kind of human connection, I think. So, yeah, that's fascinating how you've you've kind of said that connection to each other is could be potentially, you know, part of the issue. Um, oh, it's critical to mental health. Yeah. And, I'm not, and I don't disagree that you can connect authentically with people through the Internet and online. I'm not and I'm yeah. not saying the Internet's bad. I'm not saying cell no. phones are bad. Yeah. I'm not saying alcohol's bad. I'm not saying pot's bad. I'm saying that too much of any of those yes. things is bad. So, and, and people say to me, well, what's too much? You know, I had a, a dad talking to me the other day and he's saying, well, you know, my son's on video games all the time and it's interfering with this, this, mm. and this. And I said, it sounds like he's got a problem. And he said, but I don't know what to do because I like video games too. And I said, it's okay to like video games. It's all right to like video games. What's going on in the rest of your life though? Mm. Is it interfering with your relationships? Now you've got a problem. Is it causing him not to go out and play with friends or sit exactly. at the dinner table and have dinner or whatever it is? Yeah, yeah. And, That's- you know, the reality is a lot of these games have been created to be addictive. Like yes. they are manipulating people to play them all the time. So there is an addiction to them, and I think it's, better like I had one on my phone for about a day and I was like I want to keep I just had to delete it I was like okay clearly I have a problem where I can't (laughs) handle a video or like some (laughs) stupid like Tetris kind of thing on my phone bejeweled or something I was like I can't do it because I just want to keep playing it because it's addictive 
Right. Yeah, totally. And I mean, and yeah, so there, there are some articles out there that will say that app creators are very aware of how to get your brain to release dopamine, which is the addictive, addictive chemical in your brain that makes you like things. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, but, but where it gets tricky for adolescents is when they're using social media yes. as a marketing tool, right? They, and mm -hmm. they, they're marketing themselves in a very inauthentic way that lacks connection and becomes a barrier then to building relationships with others. And so then they start to think, everybody else is doing great. I'm feeling awful. Um, and they don't know how to call on each other. They don't know how to talk to each other. They don't know how to sit and uh, support each other through hard times. I mean, you look at a group of teenagers, they're all on their cell phones, right? I think it's changing the way a generation, uh, generations of kids are developing social skills and ability to connect. And I think that it's probably making the prevalence of mental health issues higher wow. and struggles, struggles greater. Yeah. So what's your message for parents out there or or friends of parents out there who, who may be struggling? The message is reach out and talk mm. to someone who, who gets it. Um, and and keep, keep talking until you find somebody who gets it. And, you know, people will say to me, well, what if, you know, can my friend call you? Yes. I'll talk to anyone on the phone. Mm -hmm. And... And because, you know, and I'll listen and I, and I may or may not have recommendations for you and, and what I'm doing specifically may or may not be right for you. I totally understand that. If it's not, I'll try and help you find something that is right for you. Just don't try and do it alone. It's very lonely and it's, and it's, um, it's, it's a tough slog and you don't have to be alone in it. There's a lot of people suffering because we're talking about it more hopefully people who are suffering from it but also their supporters can talk about it more which then would hopefully lead to the help and support that I agree so, yeah there's so much stigma with it and there's so much secrecy that goes with um, mental health and addictions and I think that that is um, uh, not well it's in the way it's in the way yeah. of people getting getting better getting help and and um, being yeah. honest, like, I mean, everybody struggles at some point. So let's get oh. real about that. Yeah, exactly. Well, this has been amazing. And I know it's been longer than our normal, but I really think it's going to be helpful. Like, it's, mm -hmm. I was just, so before we sign off, Maureen, how can people get hold of you? Is it through your website or? Yes, my number is on my website. So the, the website is maureentowns.com and M-A-U-R-E-E-N-T-O-W-N-S.com. And my phone number is there. And um, you can email me, you can call me. And like I say, if I'm not the right person to help you, um, I'll help you find someone who can. So that's, that's what I recommend. Thank you so well, much for sharing your story with us. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for thanks great. for the time. Yeah, thank you very much. I really, I love talking about this stuff. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Maury. Hi, Life Reframers. Did you enjoy our episode today? If so, please leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also, check us out on all our social media avenues via reframeyourlife.ca.